Would you pray with me? God, open our eyes this morning to see your glory. To see the glory of Christ displayed in the scriptures. Do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Rex Blackburn. I'm a pastoral assistant here at Emmanuel Church. It's my pleasure to bring the word of God for you this morning. Um, We're going to be in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. So we are in a series right now, sort of preparing for our fall series, in which we'll be looking at the Gospel of Matthew. So this summer, we are looking at all of the, well not all of the, but some of the big Old Testament passages that point forward to the coming of Christ. So that's what we've been doing this, uh, this summer. So we've hit you know, Genesis 3.15, the first preaching of the Gospel as it's known, uh, looked at God's covenant with Abraham and David and Moses and Uh, how each of these things sort of point forward to the coming of Christ. And most recently, we've looked at Isaiah chapter 53, and this morning, we'll be in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, We had the privilege here a couple weeks ago of hosting a vacation Bible school here at Emmanuel. And I grew up in church, grew up in a Christian family, and so I too attended vacation Bible school when I was little. In fact, uh, a few days ago, uh, my, my family has a scrapbook and um, I had my mom sort of send me a picture of something that I remembered from the early pages of that scrapbook. And it was a little project that I made when I was like three years old. I was pretty advanced. Uh, when I was like three years old at VBS, I made a little project. And it was a blue piece of construction paper. And it was these little pieces that you pasted one on top of the other. And when you were done, you had a lion. Like Daniel in the lion's den. And... Um, it, I mean, it, the beauty and the majesty of it really brought a tear to my eye seeing it again. I was impressed at the work that I was able to do, the craftsmanship that I was capable of at such a young age. But um, Daniel is a very familiar book to a lot of us, and a lot of us that are familiar with the Bible and have grown up in church, uh, we know a lot of stories from Daniel. For instance, Daniel in the lion's den, uh, the golden statue that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down to the golden statue, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace by the king. Um, Even Daniel's faithfulness in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. That's the King James Version. I grew up with the King James Version, so that's how I memorized that verse. Uh, Even the king's vision in Daniel chapter 2, I believe it is, with the statue where the head is of gold and the the chest and the arms are of silver and uh, each layer represents a a different kingdom that's going to come and there's this big rock that comes and destroys the statue and Daniel interprets this dream for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, God makes Nebuchadnezzar like a beast. Nebuchadnezzar eats grass in the fields like a beast for several days because of his pride and uh, loftiness and exalting himself up against God. There's the handwriting on the wall. King Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son. You mean, mean, tickle a parson. And, and Daniel interprets this writing, and uh, Belshazzar's kingdom is going to be overthrown, and the whole kingdom of Babylon is going to be overthrown. All of these are very, very familiar stories that we know from the book of Daniel, and many of those, uh, if not all of them, you may recognize. But if I were to ask you, oh, well, kids, what about the vision of the goat and the ram? Okay, that's a little less familiar. Well, what about the vision of the, the four beasts? You know, the, the, the lion and the bear and the leopard and then the fourth beast that's not really identified and the ten horns and there's the one 
little horn that comes up and has eyes and a mouth, and he uproots three of the horns before him. See, the nodding stopped, right? And so these are, these are stories that we're not quite as familiar with. Um, and I think it, it can be comical, but uh, it's interesting that it, it's a common, there are commonly ignored segments of the Scripture. And the second half of the book of Daniel falls into that group. And this morning I hope to remedy some of that when we look at Daniel chapter 7. We'll be in verses 13 and 14. 13 and 14 will be our text this morning, but we'll look at the chapter as a whole. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to this one like a son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, if you know your, um, if you know your Old Testament, uh, you'll recognize where we're at in terms of Old Testament history here. We're in a period called the Babylonian Exile. The Babylonian Exile. So just to kind of give us a, a brief recap of where that places us, God's people exit Egypt in the Exodus, and after 40 years of wilderness wandering, they come to the Promised Land. Hooray, we're finally here. And then you have the time of the judges, where the judges rule over Israel, and then at the rule of the kings, Saul and David and Solomon. And then after Solomon's reign, the kingdom splits. So it's a northern and a southern kingdom now, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And then the northern kingdom eventually is taken over by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom, Judah, is taken over by Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. And God's people are taken out of the Holy Land and taken into exile in Babylon. And that's where we find ourselves here at the beginning of Daniel. In fact, if you look at the, the opening verses of the book of Daniel, uh, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. But in Daniel chapter 1, we see that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And so then we read in that first chapter where Daniel and some of his friends are taken in this exile away from the promised land and into Babylon. Also, it's helpful to note the literary context of our passage. So that's sort of the historical context, what's going on in the history of Israel when we get to Daniel, this book. But what's going on in the book of Daniel when we get to this chapter? Well, every single one of those familiar stories that I mentioned a few minutes ago, every one of those takes place in the first six chapters of Daniel. Okay, that whole list, chapters 1 through 6. In 7 through 12, you have mostly visions, dreams, interpretations of those visions. In our chapter, chapter 7, is sort of that hinge point of the book of Daniel where we end the stories of, of, of Daniel and his friends and their faithfulness in exile, and we begin these visions and the explanation of these divine visions. So, I want us to read the whole of chapter number 7, and let's see this vision in total, because we're jumping in in 13 and 14 with the one like a son of man approaching the ancient of days. We're jumping in in the middle of the vision there. So we need some context as to what's going on here in this chapter. So you can go ahead and flip over to the beginning of chapter 7, and we're going to look at this vision as a whole. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, 
four winds of heaven were stirring up a great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, a third beast, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And this beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was, a different, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast, the fourth beast, was killed, its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. We'll pause there. We'll resume the rest of the chapter later. So, what do we have here? Let's review sort of our main characters that we see in this vision. Uh, if you're looking for an outline in this sermon, we're in point one right now, which I've entitled, Lord of the Rings fans will be very pleased, Riddles in the Dark, point number one. Uh, then point number two, we'll look at kingdoms and kings. In point three, we'll look at this figure, one like a son of man. So first, what do these things mean, these visions in the night? Well, let's look at our characters. The four beasts. We've got one like a lion, one like a bear, one like a leopard, and then this fourth and final most horrible beast. Daniel says that this beast was exceedingly terrifying and horrible, and he caused great destruction. Uh, it's interesting that they emerged from a great tempestuous sea, reminiscent of sort of a chaotic, formless sea from which God created order in Genesis 1. You've got these ten horns, one ugly, nasty little horn that has eyes like a man and a mouth that speaks great things. Then we've got this Ancient of Days figure. Spoiler alert, that's God. So we've got the Ancient of Days, and not only the Ancient of Days, but this thousands of ten thousands of, of servants and ministers that are around his throne and in his throne room. And this mysterious one, this one like a son of man who appears before the Ancient of Days. So what do these things mean? Well, let's keep reading. We're told, 
16 is where we are. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. That should be a relief. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. And I desired to know the truth about this fourth beast, which was different from the rest. And he goes on for a few verses describing this fourth beast again. And then let's pick up in verse 23. Thus he said, this one who's explaining, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He'll be different from the former ones. He'll put down three kings. He'll speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion, the dominion of this fourth beast, shall be taken away, and to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So, what do these beasts represent? Hopefully you know the answer now that we've looked at this interpretative portion of the passage. These kingdoms represent, or these beasts represent kingdoms, kingdoms of the world. Now, what characterizes these earthly kingdoms? What sort of kingdoms are they? Well, they're violent kingdoms. Note, each of these beasts is a carnivore, right? Lion, bear, leopard, the fourth beast. We're not given a, an analog, but we assume it's carnivorous. And not only carnivores, these are apex predators. So there's no cattle or goats or sheep or lambs in this portion of the vision. These are different, these are different sorts of animals. Instead of a sheep, instead of a goat, instead of a lamb, we have these apex predators that hunt, devour, and destroy. So if you don't know this, the animal kingdom is a violent, unforgiving place. Uh, I hunt, something that I do quite a bit, I hunt white-tailed deer. Uh, and if you've ever watched white-tailed deer, you'll know they're very, very skittish most of the time. They're nervous, jumpy. Their ears are always kind of moving around, catching sound from different angles. If they're looking at you, they may be pointing both ears toward you, or their ears may be kind of listening to make sure nothing's sneaking up behind them. Why? Why so nervous? Why so jumpy? Why so skittish? Because they don't want to die. It's that easy. Every single day, they wake up and think, boy, I hope I don't die today. The older, wiser deer will be even more cautious. So if you're hunting an older deer and they're looking at coming into a specific area that maybe they're suspicious of for some reason, you'll watch they'll circle around to the other side and come in from downwind. Why? Because they have an, an acute sense of smell and they want to see, okay, is there something dangerous in this area? I want to know, I want to smell a threat before the threat can get to me. And any, any, anything suspicious there and they're gone. And this is all because they don't want to die. And remember, this is in rural North Carolina. Or there aren't many varieties of predator out there for them. What about Africa? Where you've got apex predators in every patch of tall grass that you walk by. From childhood, we're fed depictions of nature. Where all the happy animals are happily getting along in their happy little families. 
And I hate to spoil that for you. But gruesome violence, death, and impermanence of life, these are the soup of the day every day in the animal kingdom. It's a, it's a violent, unforgiving place. Why dwell on this? Well, because there's a reason that Daniel chooses these sorts of animals. Daniel depicts these kingdoms as beasts. Because guess what? Human kingdoms can be far more beastly than the animal kingdom. As violent and gruesome and unforgiving as the animal kingdom can be, human kingdoms can far out exceed it. Why do I say this? Well, at least the lion slaughters the warthog because he's hungry and wants to live, right? But why does the dictator slaughter helpless, innocent millions? He's hungry too, but for power, for control, for fear. It's a more insidious slaughter than even that of the animal kingdom. These kingdoms are turbulent. This comes through especially in the, the, the portion talking about the horns, right? So you've got this one little horn that's supplanting the horns before it and this king that's rising up and uprooting the three kings that were before him. And this, again, characterizes the kingdoms of the world. A crazed Adolf Hitler swallows a cyanide pill and takes his own life in a bunker somewhere. Mussolini is shot and strung up in the street. In France, Louis XVI is guillotined by his own subjects. In England, Charles I is beheaded in the street. The kingdoms of this world are unstable, and any peace that is found there is relatively short-lived. Beastly kingdoms. They're temporary. Perhaps the most notable in terms of our, our vision here, these kingdoms pass away. They don't last. This is the story of civilization. Kingdom overthrows kingdom. Ruler supplants ruler. Now, for us, sitting in America, that sort of tur violent turnover in power and kingdoms feels sort of barbaric, sort of medieval. We're past all that. How presumptuous. Coming from a country that's only 250 years old and started with a revolution and already has one violent, bloody civil war under its belt. When the Roman Empire and Republic, you put those together, you've got over a thousand years that they span. So here we are, a toddler on the world stage, thinking that we're past all these sorts of things. The kingdoms of this world are temporary and are fleeting. And the power that is enjoyed even by the most brutal dictators will pass away and do so quickly. It's interesting that the theme, this theme of kings and kingdoms, features so heavily in this vision because it's a consistent theme in the book of Daniel as well. So if, you, if we zoom out and look at the book of Daniel as a whole, particularly those first six chapters that we talked about earlier, I mean, the book opens with a transition of kingdoms. Right? We read those first couple verses where the book of Daniel starts with God giving over the king of Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar as Nebuchadnezzar besieges and attacks and, and, and lays waste to Jerusalem. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream that we talked about, the, the head of gold, the, the, the chest and arms of silver, the legs of brass and the feet of iron and of clay, what is that? Well, it's sort of a parallel to our vision here. It's explained by Daniel that those are four kingdoms. What do we have here in this vision? Four kingdoms. Each one of those layers represents a successive kingdom. Then a divine stone crashes into the statue and itself becomes a great mountain filling the whole earth. Chapter 5, we see the violent end of Belshazzar's reign with the handwriting on the wall episode. It's a very important part of the book because it's a partial fulfillment of that vision of the statue that was given in Daniel chapter 2. 
The head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, is replaced by the next kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire that comes in and the kingdom and, and, the, and the reign of Belshazzar and overthrows that Babylonian Empire. So in chapter 5, we see a partial fulfillment of that vision from chapter 2. And it's interesting, because our vision, chapter 7, comes after chapter 5, where Belshazzar's kingdom is overthrown. But if we look, this vision, if you look at the beginning of chapter 7, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. So this vision that we're looking at in chapter 7 actually takes place before that violent transition of kingdoms in chapter 5. What does this show us? Well, it illustrates an important point, that the sovereignty of God is over all of this turbulence, all of this violence, all of this transition, all of this impermanence in the kingdoms of men. That's not outside of God's sovereign control. As we think of these transitions, it's important to note, God tells us he's the one doing it. The verses we read in chapter 1, what does it say? As the kingdom of Judah, God's own people, falls to the heathen Babylon kingdom, what does God say? The Lord gave the king of Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God hands over kingdoms. God displaces himself, displaces kings and kingdoms. In chapter 4, when God humbles Nebuchadnezzar, makes him like a beast, what explanation is given for this? Quote, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he will. In chapter 5, Daniel's about to translate the handwriting on the wall for Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, and he reminds him of this. Daniel says to Belshazzar, O king, the Most High God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty, but when your father's heart was lifted up and he became proud, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets over them whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but instead have lifted up yourself against the God of heaven, the God in whose hands is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. So what does God do? God takes that kingdom, gives it to someone else. Don't be deceived. The violent, turbulent, transitory nature of these kingdoms is not outside of God's control. In fact, God is directly manipulating the affairs of men here. As hostile and violent as these beasts are, they are on the leash of the Ancient of Days. And even in their rebellion, will do his bidding. Now, we've seen the kings, we've seen the kingdoms. Who is this one like a son of man? This vision of violent, turbulent, fleeting earthly kingdoms gives a stark and wonderful contrast to this mysterious one, this one like a son of man. How are some of the ways these kingdoms are different? Well, the kingdoms of this world, as we've said, are beastly kingdoms, while this one is led by one made in God's image, a son of man. Now, we've already pointed out that men aren't angels by any stretch, especially when power is involved. But recall the contrast in Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation when the king is made like a beast, and then the relief, the glorifying God when his human faculties are restored. That contrast comes through here. We've seen kingdoms of beasts, one beast after the other, but finally, a son of Adam, a man, is going to take the, take the reins and be the king. So that gives us an assurance that these, this kingdom will be different from those before it. 
the kingdoms before were turbulent. This kingdom will have stability. Instead of the infighting and grappling for power of the former kingdoms, this kingdom will never be destroyed. The former kingdoms had many rulers. The fourth beast, the fourth kingdom, has ten horns, and then another one comes up and uproots three, and there's this fighting for power among many different rulers. But this kingdom is a rulership given to one. He is given dominion, glory, kingdom, and worship. And then maybe the most notable difference, those kingdoms were temporary, this kingdom will be eternal. From him, from this one like a son of man, we see an everlasting kingdom. The rule of each beast came to an end, but this one like a son of man, he is given an everlasting dominion. Like the kingdom described by Darius in Daniel chapter 6, once he finds Daniel was preserved in the lion's den, what does he say? The God of Daniel is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. Before that, in Daniel chapter 2, it's said of this stone that's going to crash into the, the kingdoms of the world. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all other kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This is understood to be that same eternal dominion that is given over to the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. A dominion given to him by the Ancient of Days himself. Let's look more closely then at the Son of Man. In fact, let's jump to the New Covenant. So it, sh it should strike you at this point. Hopefully you've noticed. I've not said the name Jesus one time. I've not even referred to this one like a Son of Man as the Son of Man, as Jesus does in the New Testament. Instead, up, in, up until this point, I've been talking about one like a Son of Man, using Daniel's language. Uh, but from this point, I want us to talk directly about Jesus now. Remember, this series is designed to look forward, to anticipate the coming of Jesus. So we're looking at a few of the various points in the, New, in the Old Testament that foretell Christ's coming. So now, let me become a new covenant preacher. And here's what I'm going to do. Pay attention. This is, there's an important difference here. I am not going to stand in Daniel chapter 7 and say, hey everybody, let's look forward. These are the events where Daniel chapter 7 is fulfilled. I'm not going to do that because frankly, I don't have the confidence in my understanding of this passage to say, thus says the Lord, here's the fulfillment of Daniel 7. Here's what we can do. We can go forward into the New Testament, we can go stand in the Gospels, and look around and say, okay, where do we see Daniel 7 language popping up from Jesus' lips? How does Jesus take the language of Daniel 7 and apply it to himself? What events does Jesus apply to, to which events does Jesus apply the language of Daniel 7? English teacher, it never leaves me. It's always up there, sorry. Now, um, if we look for the Son of Man title in the Gospels, uh, we'll find it 80 plus times. So I have 84 points. That, I'm just kidding. Um, we'll see it 80 plus times, all coming from the lips of Jesus. So we're not going to go through each of those titles. And in fact, if you did, you wouldn't really see a consistent single thread that unites Jesus' use of that title. He uses it in all sorts of different ways. And it seems like all sorts of different themes are at work when he does use it. But we do see evidence of what I call more full Daniel 7 language, including Jesus using the Son of Man title, but also using things like coming with the clouds of heaven, sitting on his throne, 
coming into his glory. This is Daniel 7 language. This, these are points where it's obvious. Okay, Dan, Daniel 7 is in Jesus' mind here. So, let's look at a few of those instances. Before we do, I want to note one thing. It's easy to think, okay, Jesus is called the Son of God. Jesus is called the Son of Man. Son of God denotes his divinity. Son of Man denotes his humanity. That's not entirely correct. Um, in fact, it, it kind of is the opposite of the case, almost. Um, what we see, there are instances where Jesus will use the phrase the Son of Man, and it does seem to involve his humanity. For instance, um, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It seems to talk about his humility, his humanity. But for the most part, when Jesus uses this title, the Son of Man, we get something different. Uh, we get him talking about his divinity, recalling, hey, when I call myself the Son of Man, I'm referring to the fact I'm this one. I'm this one from Daniel 7. I approach the Ancient of Days. I receive from God himself glory, dominion, a kingdom. That doesn't denote his humanity. That denotes his divinity. In Daniel 7, it's shocking for us in this divine celestial context to see one like a son of man. Shockingly human. But in the Gospels, this earthy, humble sort of context with the son of a carpenter from Galilee, to see him invoke the son of man language, it's shockingly divine because we have Daniel 7 in view. Whoa, he called himself the son of man? In fact, it's when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man before the high council that the high priest rips his garments open and says, you've heard his blasphemy, what more do you need? It's Jesus claiming this Daniel 7 dominion and authority. Now, I think that there are two events, primarily, where Jesus applies this Daniel 7 language. And if I were to ask you, you'd probably get one of them. If I asked each, if each of you in here and said, okay, when you think of the language, Jesus, the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven and receiving his kingdom, what event do you think of? Many would say, second coming. And that's exactly right, I think. I think it's right to think that. But there's another event that I think perhaps even better fits the language of Daniel 7. We'll look at that in a moment. But first, Matthew 25, 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. The nations will be gathered before him, and sheep will be separated from goats. And then after this is the eternal state. Clear second coming language there, right? Judgment language. Matthew 24, All tribes of the earth will mourn and will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You see the difference here where I'm saying we can't look at each time Jesus calls himself the Son of Man and think, oh, he has Daniel 7 in mind. But when he says, tribes of the earth will mourn, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory, there our antennas should definitely go up and think, well, Daniel 7. And that's Jesus referring to the second coming. In John 5, Jesus invokes his identity as the Son of Man to denote his God-given authority to execute final judgment. And it's definitely final judgment in place because tombs are opened and the resurrection of the just and the unjust happens. So when Christians hear this phrase, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, it seems pretty obvious he's talking about the second coming. And I think that's right. And those passages that we've looked at show that. And you may wonder, why I'm not eager to put all of my chips on that fact and say, okay, Daniel is prophesying the second coming. 
Let me show you why I'm not eager to do that. Because there's another event that Jesus clearly associates with Daniel 7. And I'm going to group two events together and say it's his resurrection and ascension. When Jesus ascends into the clouds. Let's remember back to Daniel 7. Where are we in this vision? In Daniel 7, where are we at? We are in the throne room of the Ancient of Days. And then, into the throne room, as the Ancient of Days is sitting on his throne and the books have been opened and the kingdoms of the world have been judged and destroyed and this dominion is handed over to this one who walks into the throne room of the Ancient of Days, one like a son of man, coming before the Ancient of Days with the clouds of heaven. And he is presented before the Ancient of Days and is given glory and dominion. Well, let's listen to what Jesus tells the council, the high council, just before he goes to the cross. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's the claim that sends them into a frenzy. You've heard his blasphemy. So just before the crucifixion, Jesus tells them, the Son of Man is about to sit down at the right hand of God. Luke 24, after his resurrection, he's with the disciples on the Emmaus Road. So he's been resurrected, not yet ascended. What does he say? They're mourning because Jesus has died, and he says, Oh, foolish ones, slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? So Jesus views his resurrection and ascension back to the Father as him stepping into his glory obtaining glory from the Father that he possessed before the world was. And the triumphal entry, Jesus is headed to the cross. He's going into Jerusalem now where he's going to be killed. What does he say? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 13, Judas exits the upper room to betray Jesus. We're getting closer to the cross now. What does Jesus say? Now is the Son of Man glorified. In Acts 7, Post-resurrection, post-ascension, what do we see? More, more importantly, what does Stephen see? Stephen's being stoned. He says, I see the heavens opened. And what does he see? He sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What's the picture here? What happens when Jesus is resurrected and ascends back to heaven? It's a picture of triumphant glory. Imagine the scene in Daniel 7. You're before the fiery throne of the Ancient of Days. Thousands upon ten thousands are worshiping him. The Ancient of Days judges the wicked kingdoms of this world. Those who've been blasphemed God are cast down, and their dominion is taken away. Interesting, in John 12, 31, before Jesus goes to the cross, you know what he says? Now is the, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world to be cast out. So when Jesus makes an open show of the principalities and powers of this world in his resurrection, that means something. Jesus obtains a dominion over this world that he didn't have before when he steps into the throne room of the Ancient of Days in his resurrection glory. And having made an open display of these principalities and powers, having cast out the ruler of this world, the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven and is presented before the Ancient of Days. And Jesus... Your Jesus receives glory, dominion, and an everlasting kingdom and takes his rightful place beside the fiery throne of the Ancient of Days. So Christian, lift up your eyes. Elevate 
your view of what happened when Jesus was raised from the dead. Something eternally, universally, cosmically significant happened when Jesus rose from the dead. When Jesus ascended back to the Father and received from him the glory that was his before the world was. Elevate your view of what occurred moments after Jesus ascended back to heaven. The disciples are standing there looking up and they see him go into the clouds. Maybe the last thing they see are his feet with the scars still there. And then what happens? That man, flesh, blood, resurrected, actual physical body, one like you, a son of Adam, takes his seat by the fiery throne of the Ancient of Days himself. And guess what? He deserves to be there. It's his rightful place. So, again, I'm not saying that is the fulfillment of Daniel 7. Thus says the Lord. Here's what I'm saying. We see Jesus apply this glorious Daniel 7, Son of Man, coming on the clouds, receiving his glory sort of language. Yes to the second coming. Absolutely. Look forward to that day. And also to his return back to the Father after his passion, his suffering, his humiliation, and then his glorification. So the transfiguration is an important event. The disciples get a glimpse of the Son of Man in his glory. When we consider these passages, where Jesus is considering his resurrection and his ascension, we see a consistent theme of glory and power. And guess what? This is good news to his subjects. This is good news to those of us who would call Christ our king. Yes, our king right now is sitting in dominion. He has cast out the ruler of this world. Now, is his kingdom fully consummated? No, but it has been gloriously inaugurated. It is good news to us that at the end of Daniel chapter 7, for instance, we see the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the saints of the Most High. So Christian, more good news for you. You, please know this, you will be swept up in his glory, in his rule, in his dominion. You will rule with him over a glorified earth. The kingdom and the greatness will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. That's good news for us. But remember, we consider two sets of passages where Daniel 7 language is used. Yes, resurrection and ascension, but we also noted second coming passages. And there's a consistent theme there as well. When the Son of Man, Daniel 7 language is used, talking about Jesus' second coming, there's a theme there, and it is a theme of judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and what will happen? The nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate sheep from goats. All the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. Why? Because it's time for judgment. Jesus says, truly I say to you, an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For the Father has given to the Son authority to execute, listen to this, the Father has given authority to the Son to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. An hour is coming 
when all who, are in the, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out either to the resurrection of life or the resurrection of judgment. So everyone under, everyone under the sound of my voice, my own wicked heart included, take notice. This Lord of glory, this son of man, this great one with dominion and a kingdom that will never be destroyed, he is your judge. He is your judge. As Paul reminds us in Romans 14, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us be sober-minded. Let us not be complacent. Let us not drift away. How great will the punishment be if we neglect so great a salvation? Friend in the room who doesn't know Christ, know this. The king has offered terms of surrender. The king beckons you to approach him under white flag, to lay down your rebel arms and approach him and beg for forgiveness, because guess what? He is eager to give it. But such will not always be the case. Finally, when we think of Daniel 7, what does it most fundamentally tell us about Jesus? When we think of Daniel 7, what should we think of? Daniel 7 puts on display the power of Jesus. It's interesting that this passage, unlike most of the other passages, if not all of the other passages that we have looked at and will look at in this series, this one's a little different. This one does not pick up the old covenant, new covenant, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. None of that language is picked up here. Not even, in spite of all the kingly language language that's used here, we don't even really hear anything about David. Nothing said here that Jesus is going to come sit on the throne of his father, David. None of that covenant language is picked up here. We're not talking about a deliverer for Israel. We're not looking at someone who's making right the sins of his people. What do we have before us in Daniel 7? Raw, cosmic, universal power. Power over the Gentile nations of the world. Power over the world and the cosmos and everything in it. This is pure unadulterated authority, rightful power given to Christ to rule. So, Christian, be aware of the modern trend to deflate Christ's glory in order to make him more relatable. He is sufficiently relatable to you. You know why? Because he is one like a son of man. Christ, like you, is a child of Adam. Notice I did not say merely a child of Adam. Christ, like you, is a child of Adam. He is a resurrected man. Think, it is a resurrected man that sits on the right hand of the Ancient of Days. So he's sufficiently relatable just with that. But don't try to deflate his glory and dominion and power in order to make him more palatable or relatable. His glory is not to be trifled with. His glory is not to be minimized. For as we speak, He is enthroned at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. If God gave you the eyes to see it, you would see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. His throne has a stream of fire issuing from it, and 10,000 times 10,000 are serving him. That's happening as we speak. That is the Christ you serve. That's the Christ to whom we sing songs this morning. That is the Christ that we say, he's our hope in life and death. So he is trustworthy, with our hope. I'll close just by one final reading of our text. So Christian, in these words, behold your God. I saw in the night visions, 
And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. I'm going to close this in prayer, actually. I remember, wait, some people have to get up here while I'm praying. Let's pray. God, our hearts are so wicked and fickle. God, we confess openly. We don't hide it. We confess that we do not consider you as we ought. We do not ascribe to you all the glory that is due to your name. So God, we repent. We don't want anymore to think small thoughts of you. God, we want to have large, grand thoughts of you and of your glory and of your kingdom. Father, thank you so much that you have offered peace to us. And I pray that if there are those who don't know your son, that they would lay down their arms. They would surrender. They would come to him in faith. Because yes, he is a glorious king, but he is a merciful king. God, we thank you for his mercy. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the Son of Man. Amen.